This is going to be a fantastic show. Yeah, it better be, because tonight we're keeping score. Now this car is automatic. It's systematic. It's hydromatic. Why, it's greased lightning. Ron and Anian. I remember pulling into McDonald's like 30 years ago in black one, right? Here I am, you know, open header, small block Chevy, running, you know, race fuel out on the street. And you pull it and the guy behind you'd be wheeling. Hey, get that thing out of here. The car doctor. All right, well, I do have an exhaust leak. You think that might be causing it? It could be that that exhaust leak, it could be affecting the opposite bank to go long. Looking for a similar response. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now... Well, they say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show? <laughs> Here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor here at the helm at 855-560-9900. You can answer your calls and take charge of what's going on with your automobile and helping to solve its problems. Mikey, this show's for you, baby. I was talking to Mikey, my board op, this morning, and we were talking about um, doing live radio, and I said... What could go wrong? Well, in the last hour and 15 minutes, we've lost two laptops and one computer in the control room. Um, I'm recovering from the flu. It was a long three days at the shop, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But we're still here doing radio, and I'm going to show Mikey what it takes to do this because uh, we're, we're, we've, uh, we, we, we've taken Mikey under our wing, and we're going to bring him along. Right, baby? So all set and ready to go? Gotcha. Okay. Let's get over to Paul Eisenstein. Paul Eisenstein is with us. He's no stranger. He's from uh, the DetroitBureau.com. Paul wrote an article recently, and we saw it in the news, and we've seen a lot of things in the news lately, about President Trump talking about closing our southern border. And while you may sit there and say to yourself, well, this isn't a political show, and it's not, but here's something that is going to affect what this show is about, your car. And we thought, yeah. you know, no one better than to talk about it than Paul Eisenstein, the expert. Paul, welcome back, sir. How you been? Hey, good to uh, good to be with you. I'm sorry you're not feeling. Well, I hope you feel a little better. Little. It seems but, like you and I came down with something at the same time. Yeah, so. you know, you, and as a mechanic for 43 years, you learn you take two shots of carburetor spray and you get under the hood, and sooner or later you feel better. <laughs> it's uh, it, it, it's in your DNA. So, um, what's going on, Paul? My gosh, he's going to if he closes the southern border, start at the top. Where do we begin? All right. Uh, some people are going to probably want to tune out on this one. I hate to say it because some folks are going to want to just buy the uh, buy the arguments that come in a bunch of tweets. And the reality is they're much more complex, as even the president himself found out when he started talking about closing the uh, southern border. What was it? Just a little over a week ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's been on the warpath with uh, with. Both the auto industry and Mexico now, since he began his campaign, uh, auto industry gets a lot of attention. He's taken shots at makers like Ford, GM, Toyota, pretty much everybody that has an operation abroad, and particularly in Mexico. Uh, and you add in all the issues, uh, the other issues. Uh, he said he would shut it down, and he was going to do it this week, according to the tweets he sent out. Uh, you notice that the borders are open, and the auto industry is one of the main reasons, because here's the problem. He shuts the border. He shuts down, within a matter of days, every assembly plant in the United States, 
and most of the uh, many anyway of the uh, uh, the current uh, the automotive component plants because the reality is North American production is so well integrated U.S. Canada Mexico that the number of parts that would be missing would be spectacular. I mean, Chevrolet Corvette transmission made in Mexico, trim pieces, radios, all sorts of stuff come from Mexico, and 70% of the vehicles that are assembled in U.S. assembly plants, I don't care if you're talking the Toyota Camry plant, the new, uh, the new Ford Ranger plant up in the uh, Detroit suburbs, they use Mexican-made wiring harnesses. Wow. And guess what? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so wow. that, if you have to find something that the automakers can't begin the assembly process without, it's a wiring harness. Uh, so basically, uh, every all the automakers, they don't inventory things like they used to. Remember the old days? You'd walk into a factory. I'm sure you've been in a few. Yeah. And there's these massive, massive uh, warehouse areas. Well, those are all gone, which is actually a good thing. It holds down costs, and it actually improves quality. Uh, but the problem is it also means that manufacturers work in a, in a concept called just-in-time manufacturing. In many cases, parts arrive from sometimes across the world uh, minutes or hours before they're used on the assembly line. So there is no room for error. You shut down the border. You shut down the U.S. auto industry with one million people involved just in factories. Excuse me. Because my cold kicking in. Yeah, and I by can the hear way, that. that doesn't include all the dealerships. And one last thought: you would be doing this just as the industry, which has been suffering. We just had three bad months in a row. Just as the industry goes into the most important selling season of the year. Wow. So, oh my gosh, you know, Paul, I, I, and I, I knew when I read the story, I said I've got to get you on this week to talk about this. But the impact of what you're describing to me. You know, what, what effect or what percentage of the economy is the auto industry in this country? Well, let's put it, let's put it this way. Uh, as I said, one million workers directly involved in the auto industry, uh, whether it's on parts or auto assembly operations. And when you add all the other workers at, well, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands working, for example, at uh, – at, uh, dealerships, never mind all the other plants. The, uh, the general consensus is that one out of seven American jobs is at least related to the auto industry. That's a big impact. Uh, when you have Mitch McConnell, who usually goes along with almost anything the president wants, saying, don't do it, you understand. Now, he is looking for a way to save face. Uh, a few days ago, he said that he's giving Mexico a year to come up with a solution for a problem that's ours. Uh, but it, then he said he could enact tariffs or he could shut the border again. Do not expect at any point there would be anything more than a show shutdown, knowing that if it went more than a day, uh, it would uh, it would affect the economy. I'll give you a couple of other numbers. Now, I'm working from memory right now, so I'm going to be off by a billion or two. Yeah, well, uh, but, it's okay. We, yeah, you know, we can all afford we, a billion or two. We can afford two. a billion or two uh, in the world we're living in. Two-way trade coming in or going to Mexico. And by the way, we still send a lot, a lot, a lot of vehicles and car parts to Mexico. Don't think it's one way. Uh, they're one of our largest trading partners, including stuff we export from U.S. auto plants, and the total is about 
uh, two-way trade is about 110 billion, if I remember correctly. So if you do the math, uh, it works out to on a seven-day-a-week, 52-day-a-week-a-year shipment schedule. That's about 300 million dollars worth of automotive goods goods coming across the border every single day of the year you want to talk about disrupting the economy that would be yeah. the best way to do it and cost a lot of jobs yeah it would it would seem there's got to be a better way to accomplish this because he's concerned about border security and unfortunately the the automotive industry is going to fall into the crosshairs of it and yeah uh, uh, th- th- this is this is a, uh, a not even a shoot yourself in the foot this is a shoot yourself in the head uh, move. I mean, we, can, we could get into and politicize and talk about whether the security at the border is necessary. I don't think you want to do no, that. I don't, I don't want to go there. There's yeah. that debate here. But the important point is you have to weigh costs and benefits. And when it comes to targeting the auto industry, that would be it. Now, uh, do we have a second more? I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. One well, more let, me, let, me ask you, let me ask you this quick question, though. We, we, have, we have time. Um, so, you know, so we, we know it'll shut down, you know, new car assembly lines and, and dealerships will have a time getting parts, new parts. But what about, you know, the independent repair trade, the water pumps, the starters, the well, alternators? Same thing, the, same thing same right? Thing. And, and, hey, folks, guess what? You're going to go to, if this went on for more than a short period, uh, you're going to go to the uh, local uh, auto repair shops for, uh, for a part that you, you the shade tree mechanic's going to put in, as a lot of your listeners are. Guess what? Not you may find that fill-in-the-blank part that you would need to do the repair on your old buggy wouldn't be available. Yeah. So this would hit you, not just new car buyers and not just people who build car parts, but we're talking about something that could affect hundreds of millions of Americans, you know, either the drive or part of a family. I, so I, you I, could I, wind up having your car sidelined if this went on for a while. 38% of the of the parts used by the auto industry that are imported, not produced in the U.S., 38% that are imported from somewhere in the world come from Mexico. That's a staggering number. Now, yeah. I, had, I, had, I, had read a, I had read an article uh, during this week, too, that talked about that if this happens, this will be part, they, they, they actually referenced it like this, they said parts rationing for cars not seen since the likes of the Second World War. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, you, you have this big problem uh, just, just in the offing. Now, you want to hear something worse. Yeah. Well, okay. okay. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, you know, we've already got tariffs on imported aluminum and steel, and whether they're working to bring back jobs, so far we're not seeing that. Uh, there's talk about it, but in the reality is I count up the numbers and I try to report um, what the claims are. It's not happening. However... Your prices are going up because of that. General Motors and Ford have broken out the numbers. Those tariffs have added $1 billion to each of those companies' costs just last year, and that could go up. Now, let's, go, let's get even worse. The president has until the end of next month to act on the, what they call the Section 232 uh, study that was done by the Commerce Department. I won't bore you with all the details, but basically uh, they're claiming, oh, uh, it, those Volvos and Toyotas that come from abroad, they're a threat to national security, according to this administration. And as a result, uh, he is very seriously talking about imposing 25% tariffs on those vehicles. That's bad enough. So you get uh, 
let's say say a Volvo XC40, which uh, off top ahead, well equipped, fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, so, sounds right. Yeah, uh, you're talking about adding another twelve to fifteen thousand dollars to the cost. Well, that's bad, right? Yeah. Well, what about the fact that the a lot of the companies, including Volvo, which just opened up a plant down in South Carolina, Toyota, which has a huge network, most of the vehicles they sell in U.S. Factor uh, in U.S. dealerships are made in North America. Most of them in the U.S., right? Yeah. That huge Camry plant in Kentucky. Yeah. So you're saying, hey, these guys did what, what they said. Uh, well, you know what? What this president and a lot of others have wanted. They opened up a factory in Kentucky, among others, and I'm going to buy that American-made Camry. Well, the reality is, the way things work, all cars have some foreign components. And some of the stuff they make abroad have U.S. components in them, right? So Toyota has estimated that the typical American-made Toyota Camry will soon cost as much as $1,600 more on average. Not, not the peak, the highest cost one. The average Camry would cost $1,600 more to an American buyer as a result of the, the uh, Section 232 tariffs because of the car parts made there. But let's make it worse. Because we're going to see retaliation all around the world, uh, you know, Europeans and others have already said, you do that, we have to do the same thing. You add another 25%, American parts become too expensive to be exported, and we have actually been seeing a rise in American cars and car part exports. And as a result, you actually cost jobs. You may have to shut down some assembly lines that are heavily dependent or at least shut down a shift uh, that was devoted to building cars for export. You already saw that. Tesla had a problem when, uh, when uh, we had the China tariffs, which have been suspended to a degree right now uh, because it was too expensive. You've seen the Ford Mustang wind up losing some of its momentum worldwide because of the tariffs or the threats of tariffs. So we've actually been seeing exports rise, and now they're falling back. And it, it, it seems like there's no end in sight. Paul, let's leave it there. We're out of time, but let's let's plan to talk maybe uh, late May. Let's see where we end like up. That. Let's get back together again real soon. All right, sir? I'd love it. Thank All you right, very much. Paul Eisenstein, the Detroit. Thank you, sir. You too, DetroitBureau.com. I'm Ron Annie in the Car Doctor. We'll talk more about this after we're back from the break. Stay tuned. For the best in car advice, give Ron a call. 855-560-9900. Now, back to Ron. Hey, welcome back. Ron Annie in the Car Doctor. Boy, that was really something from Paul Eisenstein, huh? Gives you some stuff to think about, that uh, everything is tied to everything, and closing the border may be good for security, but um, going to be tough on the auto industry. There's got to be some alternate solutions. It was good information from Paul Eisenstein. We thank him once again. Let's get over to Jason in St. Louis, 18 Ford F-150, wants to talk about trans temperature. Um, response to my conversation about trans fluid temperature last week and the week before. Jason, how are yeah, you, sir? Welcome I to appreciate, the I appreciate it, man. Uh, uh, you're welcome. I was watching the transmission temperature um, on the F-150, and it would range anywhere from like 175 to about 196, and I started getting a little little scared because you said it started to uh, cut down on the engine i'm sorry the uh, transmission um fluid life yeah um and uh then i would see that if i would come to a stop after it would reach those temperatures it would jump back um up to about 205 and then it would stay up there and it wouldn't drop um 
I started going online and searching, and after what you were saying, I was thinking, well, shoot, I'm going to be changing it at uh, 50000 if if um, what you were saying was correct, um, if, right. if it's going to be cut in half. Right, yeah. And, and um, I looked online, and they said the anywhere from uh, 206 to, I think it was 215 is the normal um, transmission temperature. And I know you were saying about 175, so I was a little... Well, so Iffy. now, now, were you looking for specs for your truck? Yeah, I, I did look for right. my truck, and yeah, Be- that's what they said, 206 to 215. The article I cited was talking about transfluid temperature in general. So it's, yeah, saying, okay. it's saying 175, 180 is a good mid-range or basis point of where they base transfluid temperature for that, okay. pro- for that projected. Remember, if you remember the article, it said, in a perfect scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and the issue is nobody drives in that perfect scenario. The, yeah. The, the guy in Nebraska is in a very different climate than the guy in Miami, than the guy in St. Louis, than the guy in Southern California, and so on. So definitely, definitely. The, the, the point there becomes no transfluid is perfect, and okay. it, it's, it's not going to last forever. So is there a problem with your truck? No, I don't think so. But the point becomes that if you want to get maximum life out of that vehicle, just change the fluid. It's it's yes, it's, yes, definitely. It's, it's it's not hard to do, uh, no. you know. It's it's just something to point out that heat is what kills trans fluid, and that's what brings the trans to a shorter life when it's not serviced. Okay, okay, all right. Um, yeah, I did have one more question. It sounds like a stupid question. Um, I've heard two different answers on it. And, um, on tire pressure, do you put in what's on the inner part of the door? What it recommends, or do you put on or put in uh, what's on the tire? What time of year is it? <laughs> well, uh, spring. So. Spring. So spring. Yeah. Spring at sixty-eight degrees here in North Jersey. If the door says thirty-two, I'll probably put thirty-two, thirty-three, knowing that I'm going to see the car again. Um, and, and then again, the car is going to go into the summer driving season when the temperature is high. So you know it's going to vary and affect it. The bottom line comes down to that tire pressure changes one degree for every. 10 degrees, one pound for every 10 degrees of temperature change. So you've got to adjust accordingly for the season you're driving into or out of. With extended oil changes, it makes it tougher. But yeah, it's a game we're always playing. I appreciate the call. I'm Ron Annie and the Car Doctor. We're back right after this. Let's get over and talk to Glenn in Philadelphia. Glenn, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Hey, Ron. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Hey, just want to get your opinion on the uh, Honda Accord 2014-2015, the four-cylinder with the CVT versus the the six-cylinder with the, I think it's a six-speed automatic trans. Which one do you think is um, more reliable? The Ford Fusion. Um... Uh, um, you know, Honda, that, that CVT setup with the four-cylinder seems to be a little bit of a rocket ship. It's it's pretty good for that first 100, 120,000 miles, and then the cost to repair can get, you know, it gets to be a little expensive, I've noticed. I think the six-cylinder with their, with their six-speed manual trans has been holding up better. But, okay. you know, part of the issue there, too, is Honda's another one of the car companies that, in my opinion, has drunk, drank the Kool-Aid that says never change fluid on a CVT. And, you know, again, we're back to when do we service trans fluid, and we service it 
either at a normal interval and not when the trans blows up or we wait till the trans blows up and then we put a trans in the car or buy a new car, which thing do we want to talk about? Um, you know, if it were me, I'd probably opt for the V6 and the six-speed automatic. Yeah. Just And the, also the other factor there, too, is it's a matter of what feels better. You know, you have to drive both because they both have very right. distinctive operating characteristics. That CVT is a very smooth transition, seamless. You almost don't feel the shift to a point. And some people like it. To me, it's maddening. I'm waiting for the, you know, something's got to happen here. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of miss that first, second, third, fourth, but I'm old school. Uh, you know, so, but that's how I'd approach it. So, but, um, but okay. take, take a look at the Ford Fusion, too. Don't rule that out. Um, May I ask you two more questions? You sure can. Quick? What would that interval be to change the trans fluid? And what do you think of a, an older Camry? I was looking at a 2005 Camry with a four-cylinder. Just what do you think of the car? Um, I think the 2005-2006 Camrys is probably a good break point to get back to if you can find one with the right mileage on it and it's had some yeah. maintenance. You know, Toyota, in my opinion, made some mistakes when they got up into the 7.8s, 9s, 10s, and a lot of the car companies did. They extended the oil change intervals out to what I think was an unhealthy boundary, and they, they created a lot of their oil ring issues and oil consumption issues and, and, and sticking oil ring issues and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, so I, I think the earlier generation ones, if you can prove normal oil changes, and by that I mean oil changes in the, you know, synthetic oil in the five, six, seven thousand mile interval and not something that went 10, 12, 15,000 miles on an oil change, I think that's probably a car worth looking at. And it's okay. it's by today's standards, it's it's pretty much a bread and butter simple car to maintain, and yeah. I think there's a lot of value there. Uh, the second question was I forgot oh, when, when to change fluid on a CVT, um, or, or even the other uh, six speed both. You know, I like I like thinking about changing trans fluid on anything at the fifty sixty thousand mile mark. Yeah, uh, you know, I just I just think it makes sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's listen, the numbers I read last week were out of a training manual, and they have no axe to grind, all right? They're, they're talking about what it takes to maintain a car. They're not trying to sell trans fluid. They're not trying to sell transmissions. They're not trying to sell trans, uh, you know, automobiles. They're trying to teach mechanics how to take proper care of a customer's vehicle so that they get longer life out of it, and they're happier with the product, and the numbers don't lie. For them to say that anything over 175 degrees shortens, you know, the trans the trans fluids life by X number of miles, that's a pretty bold statement. I haven't seen anybody deny it, and that statement's been out there since 2014, 2015. That's coming up on four years ago. So, you know, we've got to get back to the idea that maintenance is what puts things in your corner. We had a customer. I had a friend who has a customer, a friend with another repair shop. Um, he's a BMW guy. And BMWs, uh, the last you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 model years, they have a lot of problems with carbon deposits, rings getting gummed up, PCV valve issues and PCV valve system issues and so on. And Stevie doesn't have any of his customers have those problems. And I was talking to him about it, and I said, you know, there's got to be a reason why you're, you're bucking the national trend, why it's not happening. And he said, yeah, and I don't know what it is. And I started talking to him, and we realized after a short period of time, because he's doing maintenance. He's doing, yeah. he's doing carbon cleaning. He's doing throttle body maintenance. He's doing regular yep. scheduled oil changes on a consistent basis. He's, he's, you know, he's doing the things to keep the engine and the car running longer, and he's beating carbon before it even forms. Yep. And, you know, it's pay me now, pay me later, that Fram commercial from the 70s, right? 
it's, it's, yep. it's, it still holds today. So, uh, you know, nothing like maintenance to put the, put the ball in your corner. All right, sir? Thank you very much. You're welcome, Glenn. Thank you, and thanks for the question. Thanks for being there. Um, yeah, maintenance is still... Maintenance is still the best odds maker. Maintenance still gives you the advantage. It's if done properly. And I think there's have do I think it's changed? Yes. I don't think the 30,000 mile service is as big as it once was on the average car today. I think that at the new number is it's falling into that 5060 is the first big service. You know, the 15, the 30, the 45 is oil changes, tire rotations, and a couple of oil changes in between, cabin air filters at 30, bottle of fuel system cleaner at 30, maybe every other oil change, depending upon how you want to maintain it. If it were me, it'd be every oil change, but I'm just like that. I've seen very good results doing that. A lot of the customers have seen very good results doing that. But the fact becomes doing maintenance just prevents that costly repair later on. Now, look, if you're going to keep the car and drive it 50,000 miles and get rid of it in three years, do four oil changes. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's not going to be your problem. But we're talking about laying the groundwork, and I hope I didn't offend anybody by saying that, but that's the truth. Because look at the, look at, look at the way they lay out oil changes in the owner's manuals of manufacturers' cars. If you're leasing the car, they're pushing the problem onto the next owner. That's why it's so important when you lease a car, you want to see the scheduled oil change maintenance records. And hopefully you want to see something that was above and beyond what the manufacturer recommended. You know, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, scheduled manufacturer maintenance works. I haven't found Shangri-La yet, and I don't know where that perfect world exists. All right? But it's just something that is it's not there. And that extra oil change here and there and that trans service before the trans fails, all that stuff adds up to that car going to 250,000 miles, 300,000 miles. You should really be coming to your mechanic and saying, I think I need a new car. I've got 280, 300,000 miles on it, and it's starting to get a little loose and squirrely in the way that it feels and rides and rattles and so on and so forth. But, you know, I see people change cars now. You need four tires and a set of brakes, and they're like, no, I'll just go buy a new car. I, you know, there's something wrong with that picture, and... uh there's a lot of things we could talk about. Anyway, 855-560-9900. Ron and Annie, the car doctor at your service. We're back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and Annie, the car doctor. Hey, Mikey. Mikey, you're a, um, you're a young guy, right? So they say. So they say. Um, so, you know, April's National Car Care Month. You know that, right? I do now. Okay, well, so April's National Car Care Month. And the Car Care Council took a survey... And I want to see if they're right. Okay, so I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you the, the pollster for the, for the youngsters, okay? So April's National Car Care Month. We thought it would be a fun idea to find out which musicians car owners like to listen to when getting ready for a road trip, said Rich White, Executive Director of Car Care Council. I'm, I'm trying to see, so who would you pick? Who's your number one go-to for you taking a road trip in your car? Who, who's music? Who is it? Uh, I like Shinedown. I like uh, something like that, some rock, alternative rock, heavy rock, something like that I'll go with. Boy, you missed the mark by about a million miles. Yeah. It's okay. You know, you're allowed. Um, Bruce Springsteen was number one. No. Yeah. I'm telling you. Bruce Springsteen, Keith Urban, Bruno Mars, Jimmy Buffett, Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, and Beyonce. Probably none of those. <laughs> but you know what? That's a generational thing. If I ask Tom, Tom, what, what music do you like to listen to when you're, when you're cruising in the car? Uh, 70s, early 80s, 60s. Right. So um, Tom four be, Tops, Tom might Springsteen. Be Bruce Springsteen, Beach Boys. Ides of March. Right, Beach yep. Boys. 
Uh, you know, it's a generational thing. It just goes to show you. I'm just, I'm very surprised they must have asked an older audience here because there's none of the groups that, and you probably don't even know who, well, you probably know who Bruno Mars is. Yeah, I know who, I know who most of them are. I just right. don't really listen. Yeah, I don't really listen either. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting. But um, in any event, April is National Car Care Month, and I just want to do a quick reminder, let everybody check all their fluids, and remember to uh, take a look at uh, engine oil and belts and hoses and tires and wipers and lighting and, you know, do all those things. And one, one comment as a shop owner, I want to say the number one most annoying thing that people seem to do, if there is one number one, it's they always tell you one last thing after the car is done. Hey, your car's all done. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you about the wipers. Well, you know, make a list. Can we make a list? You know, I mean, with us, you know, we'll sit there and we'll tell them, by the way, you know, do you want to do the wipers? Do you want to do this? And we'll say, no, i got to let you know. And then afterwards, we're all done. They say, okay, yeah, now I want to do the wipers. You know what? The moment passed. That was this morning. It's... So let's uh, let's all get on the same page. Recent article in the record, the Bergen Record of North Jersey today. Uh, what's today? Today's April sixth. Yeah, the European Union Authority said Friday. That means yesterday that German automakers, oh boy, BMW, Daimler, and Volkswagen. Gee, Volkswagen's at it again. Colluded to limit the development of emissions cleaning technology in their cars. The findings add to the car industry's woes after Volkswagen in 2015 admitted to cheating on emissions tests in the U.S which led to a worldwide reevaluation of how cars are tested. The EU antitrust regulator said that after an in-depth investigation, it found that BMW, Daimler, and Volkswagen, including its Audi and Porsche units, broke EU laws from 2006 to 2014 by illegally agreeing among themselves to limit the rollout of technology. The technology helped eliminate nitrous oxides, which can be harmful to human health. You know, here we are again. So we're, we're back to cheating on emissions, and it just seems to be a worldwide problem. And what really got me throughout all this, and okay, I guess they got caught cheating, is the case comes after Volkswagen admitted four years ago to using software and diesels to cheat on U.S. emissions tests. It has set aside $32 billion for fine settlements, recalls, and buybacks. Where'd that $32 billion go? Because I'm not seeing any of it. And, you know, what are they doing for me since they polluted my environment? Did you get a check, Mikey? Negative. I didn't get a check. And, and Tom definitely didn't get a, a check. Not, 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 you know, Tom's, Tom definitely didn't get a check, not judging by the way he dresses. So, you know, renewed scrutiny of diesel emissions revealed that cars from other automakers also showed higher diesel emissions every day driving than during testing, thanks in part to regulatory loopholes that let automakers turn down the emission controls to avoid engine damage under certain conditions. Antitrust fines can be steep, the article closes out by saying. In 2016 and 17, the European Union Commission imposed a fine of $4.3 billion. That was on top of the $32 billion Volkswagen set aside. That six truck makers had colluded on pricing, the timing of introduction of emission technologies, and the passing on of costs for emission compliance to customers. Why does it seem that customers seem to be the ones that take the beating, but the car companies are paying the money to someplace else other than the customers? I don't... I don't understand that. So, but um, anyway, let's pull over and take a pause. We'll come back and finish up. 855-560-9900. Run on any of the car doctor at your service. Don't go away. Welcome back. Run on any of the car doctor. You know, to finish out that comment about the Car Care Council, uh, you know, the conversation about um, music, musicians and, and road tests, it also depends what car you're in. In the hot rod, I'd listen to the soundtrack to American Graffiti till my ears bled. But, you know, if 
I was in the Monte Carlo, it'd be Frank all the way. Let's go over to Gary in Maine, 03 Dodge, Dakota. Gary, how can I help you, Ron and Annie in the car doctor at your service, sir? Yeah, hi, Ron. How are you doing? Good, sir. Uh, second time caller. I called you about a year ago with the same vehicle. It's, okay. Uh, thank, thank you very much. I appreciate your show, and I listen to you every, every week. Thank you, uh, sir. It's an 03 Dakota, v- right. uh, 478. Right. And it's got 140,000 miles. Uh, truck's in overall good shape. There's no rust or anything. It's just that it, the the years are catching up with it. Yeah. I've got an ECM. I think I, you know, my mechanic and one that I trust, like I hear you say, um, is telling me that it's pointing to the ECM with a, he, he believes that the voltage regulator is built into the main motherboard. Yes, I believe, brain. I believe, I believe it is an 03. You're correct. He's correct. Yeah, it's not a separate item where you can just swap it out. No. And, he, and he's saying what it's doing is is that it's uh, it's sending a signal to the um, the battery gauge on the on the dash. And when I start it up, sometimes it's right where it should be at what well, I don't know what it is thirteen eight or something. Right. And sometimes I start it up and it's right down at nothing. And sometimes I start it up and it's pinned out at high. And uh, it just depends on what it feels like doing. And he says, eventually what's going to happen is just running on the battery, and it's going to run at the battery voltage, and you're going to wear out your battery. And by the way, that's new. That was a $250 battery about three months ago. Yeah, I, you know, so I, is it something that he can catch in the act? Can he, you know, can he be there when this is happening? Uh, he could certainly start it up and see what I see on the battery gauge. Okay, so uh, it's, it's going to be one of those three positions that he's going to see. So, so, so you know, and I don't want to trust the dash gauge. I'm not a dash gauge guy. Uh, you know, right. the, the gas dash gauge is a good second opinion. But let's put a voltmeter on the battery if 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 that matches the dash gauge. And the only reason I say that is because the car is broken, right? I don't want to use I don't want to use the broken car for my barometer of of making a decision if it's good or bad. So an external voltmeter would work wonders here because what if you found out that the charging system's working fine? It's just the dash gauge is broken, right? Oh, that's yeah. I didn't I didn't think of that. And the other thing is is that the alternator they tell me is good. Right. I've had two different garages. Okay. Yeah, it might it might very well be. Yeah. But let's let's do this. Two things. Let's put yeah. a vo- let's put a yeah. voltmeter on the battery, and does does the ch- does the charging rate of the dash gauge match what the voltmeter on the battery says? That's good. And then if you catch this in the moment of not charging, with a good scan tool, a proper scan tool hooked up, you can right. use the scan tool to field or create the alternator or cause the alternator to charge, discharge, and so on. You can control the PCM to control the alternator. If he tells the scan tool, mm-hmm. hey, turn on the field and charge the, run the alternator and charge the battery, and nothing happens, the input's getting to the PCM, nothing's coming out, yeah, that kind of proves the point, right? That kind of shows you that the, the PCM is at full. And, you know, it's more than just an educated guess. And I would also think that there should be a fault code in here because they're looking at PCM and charge rate response. Have them do those couple of things. Call me back next week if you need more help. I'm Ron Annie and the Car Doctor. Good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.